we have one more sermon in our Sermon on the Mount series. I, I hope you've enjoyed this ride. It's been a uh, delight to get to explore the Sermon on the Mount with you this summer. Uh, before we begin, why don't we ask the Lord's blessing on us? Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for the word of the kingdom of God that you brought 2,000 years ago. Thank you for the way it has been transforming people into your disciples for so long. Thank you that we can sit at your feet even this morning and learn to live as ambassadors of your kingdom here and now. As we have this one final chance to hear what it is you said so long ago, would you open our ears, open our hearts, Make us into those who both hear and do that which you tell us is right. And help us to find eternal life as we do so. In your mighty name, amen. August 29th of 2005, the big one came to the big easy. Hurricane Katrina, category, category 5 hurricane, hit New Orleans and answered once and for all, what happens when a Category 5 hurricane hits a city built below sea level? History tells us it's a disaster. The levee system that kept the sea at bay gave way. 80% of the city flooded. Over $70 billion worth of property damage was done. Oh, there had been warnings that this sort of thing might happen. Many engineers and even some of the high levels of city leadership suspected that the levee system, if it got a direct hit from a big enough storm, wouldn't be up to the task. And yet those at the highest levels and even the Army Corps of Engineers kept saying things would be fine. And then Katrina started heading towards New Orleans. In the days that led up to it, the meteorology department and the federal, of the federal government started warning the officials in New Orleans that this was not going to be a good situation. Thankfully, even the most hardened of critics eventually came around. And just a couple days before, a mandatory evacuation order was given to the whole city of New Orleans and all the suburbs surrounding it. The vast majority of the people got out, praise the Lord. But about 100,000 people either were unwilling or unable to leave. 1,200 of them died, and those who lived through it have a har harrowing experience of survival. It was a disaster, one only multiplied by the fact that the warnings by some went unheeded. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount this summer, a section of scripture that so many people love. Jesus has laid out this beautiful vision for the kingdom of God breaking into this world. As he's done so, he's taught us what it means to live as his disciples, and he showed us how we can have our allegiance in heaven instead of here on earth. Last week, we started what we said was the ending of the Sermon on the Mount, the conclusion. Jesus, like any good preacher, bringing us to decision time. Time to clarify where we stand with Jesus, and ultimately time to clarify what we'll find on Judgment Day. We saw that the ending of the Sermon of the Mount is actually four subsections, four decisions that you have to make. 
that will decide where you stand with Jesus and, and what you'll find on Judgment Day. Last week we saw that we have to decide what road we'll take toward Judgment Day. If we will live for Jesus, the narrow road of a disciple, or if we'll live for ourselves. We saw we have to decide who we'll listen to on the way to Judgment Day. Whether to Jesus or to the many false prophets that will come. This morning Jesus has two more decisions for us. Two decisions that will determine whether we will find everlasting joy on the last day or the greatest of all disasters, eternal sorrow. The two sections we'll look at are verses 21 through 23. We'll answer the question, what sort of confession will you make? And then verses 24 through the end, verse 29, what sort of foundation will you build on? And we'll see that a warning that is unheeded leads to disaster. So we must listen and live by the words of Jesus to find eternal life on the last day. Let's begin by looking at verses 21 to 23, where we'll answer the question, what sort of confession will you make? You may have heard of the organization Evangelism Explosion, or EE. Uh, For decades now, they've been training believers on how it is you share the gospel. Uh, The guy who founded it, D. James Kennedy, he founded the seminary I went to in Fort Lauderdale, uh, Knox Seminary. And one of the questions they're they're, uh, famous for, uh, teaching people to ask very helpfully to unbelievers, is uh, imagine a scenario where you get to the end of your life, and you're just about to enter heaven, and God stops you, and he asks, why should I let you in? Now, at that point, the person responds, and their response Let you uh, have a little window into their heart to understand what it is they're trusting in. It's a a really effective question to ask people. I I think one of the reasons why it's so effective is it comes almost straight out of this passage this morning. It's almost straight from the lips of Jesus. In, In verse 21, he lays out the principle, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So this is a warning. And then in 22 and 23, he, he teases out that principle in a, a, by giving us a window into what judgment day will look like. He says, on that day, a very impressive group is going to walk up. They're going to walk up to Jesus. On that day, there will be many who say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? It's a big group that comes up to Jesus that looks impressive at any level you slice it. They're large in number. They seem to have the the confession nailed down. They call him Lord, Lord. These aren't atheists or agnostics. They're they're not people that show up on judgment day or like, why is Jesus here? What's the deal with this? They expect to see Jesus there. The, The way they address him even suggests that they understand who Jesus really is. He's the judge. The early church took that phrase, Jesus is Lord, as a a sort of confession, a a shorthand way of saying that your allegiance is to Jesus as your Savior and your your God. You might know Philippians chapter 2, a very famous section of scripture. You can see this come out in what's probably one of the earliest hymns we have from the early church. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this then is a group of people that come that know good theology. They know the right confession to have and they're not afraid to say that they're with Jesus. They're impressive at that level. They're impressive in that they also have a very fat spiritual resume. See there in verse 22 that they give Jesus three reasons why they, they must be those who will enter the kingdom. They say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? The, the way that's written in Greek, it's almost like saying, surely, Jesus, we did these things for you, right? I, I mean, Jesus, don't, don't you remember that we spoke the very words of God to people? We spoke on your behalf. We weren't ashamed to be your mouthpieces. Uh, don't, don't you remember that, you, I mean, you came to this earth to destroy the works of darkness, and we were about the same thing. We saw the kingdom of darkness roll back and greater light shine in this world through our efforts. Jesus, didn't your power flow through us? Didn't we even do miracles? Didn't we find a strength that was not our own just flowing through us? I mean, friends, these are an impressive group. They're people with big, beautiful Bibles and big, beautiful ministries. And that's what makes what comes next so devastating. Because Jesus tells them, I never knew you. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that this is the most solemn verse in the whole Bible. That if anyone said it except for the Lord Jesus, we would rightfully condemn him. I think he's right. There's no greater disaster than to arrive at Judgment Day thinking that you are about to enter eternal bliss and instead be told, I never knew you. Depart from me, worker of lawlessness. How could they have gone so wrong? How could they have missed so badly? We have to look carefully at what it is that Jesus says about them if we were to understand. The crux of it, though, friends is they were deluded about where they stood with Jesus. Uh, we have to be honest about things. We, we, we have an incredible capacity for self-delusion, don't we? There was a woman in the early 1900s named Florence Foster Jenkins. She has a title you don't want. She is known as the worst singer of all time. Florence Foster was very big in the art opera scene in New York. She was a wealthy patron of the arts. Uh, she would be the one organizing all the fundraisers, bankrolling the new uh, venues, you know, someone just integrally woven into the fabric of that artistic community. She was so beloved by all the artists that they started to allow her to have a, a little bit of a diluted view of her own musical talents. She, she styled herself, she thought of herself as a good singer but it turns out she really wasn't. She would put on these little concerts where they would make sure that the only people that showed up were people that were sympathetic to her cause. Friends, people that wouldn't you know, say anything overly discouraging to her. They would sit through the 
horrible concert and smile and thank her and gladly take the checks that she would write so they could continue their artistic work. This all was kept on by a group of enablers and handlers that carefully insulated her from the truth about how her singing ability, or lack thereof, was actually heard. That all kept going on until one day, Miss Jenkins became so convinced of her singing ability that she booked herself for Carnegie Hall. Public and everything, open to anyone. Uh, at this point, word about how bad of a singer she was had started to spread, and so when tickets went on sale, they sold out, and they actually had to turn 2,000 people away at the door. Her handlers did the best they could to try and prevent it from happening. By that point, it was too late. This show would happen. The press was not kind. Uh, the New York Post said, Lady Florence indulged last night in one of the weirdest mass jokes New York has ever seen. That night, Lady Florence, through the howls of laughter of a full Carnegie Hall, finally heard the truth about herself. If we're honest, we know this to be true, that we can lie to ourselves, don't we? Maybe it's an overstatement of our skill, thinking we're really socially more graceful than we are, thinking we've got our life together. One way or another, we all get good at lying to ourselves. But friends, if we are deluded about where we stand with Jesus, oh friend, a disaster is coming that none of us can withstand. What is it that Jesus says about these people? He says that they lack two things. If we look carefully at his words, we'll see both of them. The first, they lacked relationship. Notice there he says to them, I never knew you. Notice he does not say, yeah, we, we at one point were buddy-buddy, we were close, but I just kind of got tired of you. I fell out of love with you, so get out of here. That's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say, you know, the, the standards of the kingdom are really, really high, and I know you tried really hard, but you just didn't quite measure up. That's not what Jesus says. No, he says, I never knew you. There was never any relationship there in the first place. Now, this is fundamental to the message of Christianity is the importance of an actual relationship with God. Maybe you're here this morning and you're checking Christianity out. One of the biggest misunderstandings people have about it is that Christianity is really a religion of rules. That we have a book full of rules and on the final day there will be a judge that will judge you based on your adherence to those rules and that we Christians are people who get better and better at keeping those rules. But friends, it's been rightly said that Christianity is not so much about keeping rules as it is having a relationship with the God who made you. The Bible's more of a storybook than a rule book. And it tells the story of a God who made us and made us in such a way that we were intended to be in relationship with him. The great tragedy is that we broke that relationship. Our, our forefathers, Adam and Eve, they, they sinned against God and broke their ability to have relationship with him. And then each and every one of us have perpetuated that cycle, running further and further away from God with our rebellious hearts. That's why there's a longing deep within each of us that nothing in this world can really fill. Because we were made for a relationship with God and nothing can substitute for that. Maybe you've even had that sense as a non-Christian that 
There's just something more to the, that you're meant for, something missing that nothing you've been able to find will actually satisfy. Friends, the good news is the God who made you and made that desire deep within you has made a way for you to have that relationship restored. That's what Jesus coming into this world came to do. He came to reconcile those who had no relationship with God except as an enemy and to bring them close and make them into his friends. He died on the cross, not as just a demonstration of love or just as someone that got chewed up in a political scheme of some sort. No, he died on the cross to deal with our sin problems so he could bring us back to God. John 17, 3 connects what it is Jesus came to do with relationship. He says, and, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Right, if you're here this morning and you don't have that relationship with God, Jesus came so that you could. He offers it to you if, if you'll just come to him and trust him. Even today, you can walk away from this church building knowing Jesus personally. And yet we also need to recognize that it's possible to get really good at playing the church game and yet to not ourselves have a relationship with Jesus. It's possible to know the right words to say, to know the right Bible to carry, even to read really good theology books, to be involved in ministries, even preaching ministries, and yet ourselves never have that relationship with Jesus that will on the final day save us. There was a man named Thomas Haslam who was a preacher back in the 1800s. He has the distinction of being a preacher that got converted by one of his own sermons. He had uh, gotten into the ministry really just because it was a good profession to be in. Felt like it was something you could make a good living doing. Along the way, he started to become convicted about how much of a hypocrite he was. And it all came to a head one particular Sunday. He, he almost decided not to get up and preach that Sunday, but out of duty, he did. And as he got up to preach, he got to one point in the sermon, and he came under such conviction from God over his hypocrisy that he just he couldn't bear it any longer. And he just stopped mid-sermon. And this pained look came over his face, and he, he just sat there for several seconds. And then something happened. His face softened, and his, his whole look changed. And there was a visiting preacher in the congregation who shouted out, this person's been converted. And in that moment, the whole congregation just burst into praise and, and, and uh, applause. And you know the strangest thing? He was right. That's what happened. Uh, afterward, he wrote about that experience, and he said he walked into that church as one who would have been eternally lost. And he walked out as one who the Lord had put his feet to stand on the rock. It's quite possible, even for us preachers, even for those engaged in ministry, even for those who go to a church that values preaching the Bible and right doctrine, it's quite possible for you to spend your whole life in a ministry like that and yet never actually come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, to never actually have a relationship with him. That's the worst of all disasters, friends. 
to be so close to the kingdom of God and yet to miss it? How is it you could know if you're in that boat? How, if you're self-deluded, what sort of signs could you look for? Well, that's the second thing that Jesus says about them. He says that they lacked heart obedience. As he sends them away, he says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Then in verse 21, again, where he lays out the principle, the one who enters the uh, kingdom of God is the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, some have taken these verses and tried to teach something like salvation by works. That you get into the kingdom by obeying enough or by avoiding breaking God's rules enough. Now, if this were the only verse in the whole Bible, it could be that you would arrive at that conclusion. But even if you just read the Sermon on the Mount, it would show that that is not what Jesus means. Remember, even in the Beatitudes, Jesus told us the one that will enter the kingdom is the one who's declared spiritual bankruptcy. The one who has no credit of their own and comes to God as one in need of a handout. So what is it that Jesus is saying here? Well, Jesus is teaching what has been rightly said. If salvation is by faith alone, it is never a salvation, uh, faith that is alone. That those who have a, a saving relationship with Jesus, who have a, a, their heart of stone changed to a heart of flesh, that on that heart is actually written God's very law. And they actually start to live in light of that which their heavenly father says is right. To use the metaphor from last week, if there's a true root of faith, there will be true spiritual fruit. And a life that does not bear true fruit will be cut down and tossed in the fire. Friends, we need to beware of thinking that a fat spiritual resume or even just an empty confession will be sufficient on Judgment Day. As if we could just know the right words to say, or sign the right card, or step forward into the aisle at the end of a sermon, and, and that is what it means to be truly saved. Friends, no, it is a total change of new life. It happens when you come to Jesus and have a relationship with him. Friend, if you're here this morning, and you have had the form of a Christian life, but you're getting the feeling that maybe, deep down, you don't know Jesus this should be a warning to you. If I were to ask you, what's your relationship with Jesus like? Would you be able to give me an answer? Or would you just point back to an involvement in ministry or a decision you made decades ago? Friend, if you really know Jesus, he will be involved in your life in some way. It's not to say that it will always be obvious and always be roses. There will be ups and downs to our spiritual journey with him. But friends, we need to ask ourselves, is there a relationship there in the first place? I've met people that have been in good churches for decades. Some who've served as elders. Some who've been out on mission fields. And who say that they didn't know Jesus for long stretches of that time until a certain point. Friend, don't go on like this. You're setting yourself up for disaster on Judgment Day. Jesus warns us, not because he wants to scare us, 
but because he lovingly knows what's coming ahead and he wants to warn us to, so we would avoid that disaster. And friends, what joy there is when we know Jesus here and now. If you're here this morning and you do know that you have a relationship with Jesus, even a solemn passage like this should produce joy in your heart. You know the judge on the final day. You have known and been known by the God who made you. Oh yeah, you, you have hard things that you'll go through in life, but friend, won't that change your Monday? The fact that you actually are known by God? When your job isn't going the way you want? The fact that you are known by God and cherished and loved and ultimately provided for already, won't that change the way you go through your Monday? When your spouse has just got you at the end of your rope yet again and you feel rejected and distant, won't the closeness that you have with Jesus bring you comfort and joy? When you feel like you're alone, maybe there isn't a spouse and you wish there was, or there was a spouse who's no longer with you. And yet you know that God lives inside of you by his spirit. Friend, doesn't that provide comfort and joy? Jesus warns us. An empty confession won't save us on judgment day. But a confession matched with a true relationship, a transformed heart, well, friends, that will save each and every one of us, no matter how big of a sinner we are. First question, what sort of confession will you have on Judgment Day? Second question, what sort of foundation will you build on? Verses 24 through 29. This is one of those verses that is so familiar that it's easy to miss the horror of it. The house built on the sand versus the house built on the rock. Maybe you're thinking of children's songs. The, the rain came down and the flood came up. It's a stark image. You could, even kids can get it. You can see why we use it so often. And yet recognize, friends, it's an image that's meant to be horrible. A house that collapses on top of you in the midst of a horrible storm. Jesus describes two different men, two builders, that build two different types of houses. You know, one digs down deep, he gets to the bedrock, he builds a structure on top of a firm base, up and up it goes from there. It says when the storm comes, that house may creak, it may groan, and yet it won't break. That house will withstand the force. The other house, on the other hand, the, the builder takes a shortcut. Maybe he doesn't have the money or maybe not, just not the time, whatever the reason. He doesn't take the time to dig down to the foundation to the rock and instead just builds right on top of the sand. House looks fine. Structure looks great. It's beautiful. But once the rain starts pouring and the wind starts howling, the house groans, the house bends, and then the house breaks. That phrase there at the end of it, Verse 27, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. That's meant to be a horrible statement of finality. That this is a disaster that has befall, befell this person. What is Jesus teaching here? He's teaching there's two ways to build your life. The key between them is how you will respond 
to the words Jesus speaks to you. Notice the, the wise man is the one who hears these words of mine, whereas the foolish man, the, the moron, where we get our word moron there for foolish, is the, the one who hears the words and does not do them. Jesus is teaching us that our lives will, without fail, be tested by trials. Life's full of storms. At some point or the other, your life will be stressed to the point where you will see what's underneath it. If your life is built on top of Christ and his words, on that day you will find a strength beneath, beneath you, keeping you, that you didn't know was there. You will endure the storms of life. And you will stand on the solid rock. If your life is built on anything else, those trials will break you. Friends, you know this to be true, don't you, as a Christian? You've likely been through very difficult times. If you haven't already, don't worry, they're coming. That's just life in this world. And yet when you do, don't you find a, a strength underneath you, holding you up, if you will, that you know doesn't come from yourself? I mean, you get the call on the phone from the doctor, and he says the word cancer. You have a child that, despite all you've poured into, walks away from the faith. You have a marriage that you banked everything on that comes to an end that you never suspected would. And yet, along the way, in each and every storm of life, don't you find, instead of those things causing you to flee from God or find, having your faith collapse, they actually draw you closer to Him? that you actually find more and more grace, the more and more it hurts. The Apostle Paul said as much in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Outwardly, we are wasting away, yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. Friends, don't you know that to be true? When Christ is the foundation of your life, you can survive the storms in life. And yet, what happens if your foundation is not Christ? What happens when you've been putting your trust in your marriage or in your bank account? or in your job, and suddenly that thing is taken away. Friend, the pastor's office is full of people whose house has come crashing down on top of them because they've built on something that was never strong enough to withstand their heart's affection. Don't let a good thing turn into a God thing. Don't let something that was meant to be a blessing in your life to enjoy for a season turn into something that sets you up for the greatest disaster of all. Oh, there are storms in life coming. There are these little trials. But friend, there's a worse storm coming. There's a tempest that will lay bare the foundations of everyone's life. The final day of judgment. And even if you manage to get through this life, with your life built on something other than Christ, there will come a day where none of us will stand because what we've built will be tested. 
on that day, if your house is built on Christ, you will find it more than sufficient. You will find everlasting joy and relationship and happiness to go on without end. And yet, friend, if your house is built on something else, if your life has really been about comfort or security or, or anything else, on that day you will find the disaster of all disasters. It may sound harsh for Jesus to warn with such language, but consider our ability to fool ourselves. Just look with, down with me at verses 28 and 29. These people who have just heard this whole Sermon on the Mount, look at the way they respond to Jesus. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of their scribes. Surely the form of what Jesus taught was different. He didn't teach with as many rabbi so-and-so says in his teaching. Yet deep down, these people knew there was something different about this teacher. This man who claimed that he would be the final judge on the final day, they had heard him teach this greatest sermon ever preached. Yet friends, most of them would end up rejecting him. By the end of Matthew's gospel, we would see that they would shout along with the religious leaders, crucify him that many of them that followed him for a time would not follow him in picking up their cross. Friend, it's very possible to sit through another service, to hear another sermon, to sing along another set of praise songs, and yet to really not have your life founded on Jesus. Hear the warning. It's not meant to be harsh. It's meant with all the love in the world. Jesus, the one who will judge you, is telling you what's coming. He doesn't want any of us to be deluded about what we'll find on that day. I told you that Hurricane Katrina, the big one, blew into the Big Easy. I watched with everyone else as that storm flooded 80% of that city. Um, I watched with probably more attention than most of us because uh, I was born in New Orleans and I had family that uh, still uh, lived there. And um, I knew that they were type of people that don't easily get up and move. Um, as the storm started bearing down, uh, my dad, who had uh, at one point moved our family away from New Orleans because he was afraid of this, just this sort of thing, uh, he called some of my relatives and it, this was at the point where there was a mandatory evacuation. And he, I heard him talking on the phone. And he was saying, you got to get out. There's a storm coming. You, you got to get out. And as the conversation went on, I, I could just, even though I didn't hear the other side, I knew exactly what they were saying because I know my family. They were coming up with all the excuses in the world. Oh, the, the house was well built. It'll be fine. Oh, we've gone through tough storms before. It, it'll be fine. Oh, it's so much trouble to pack it all up. Oh, it's too dark outside. The rain's already starting to come down. No, no, no. We're just going to stick it out. As the conversation went on, I heard my dad's tone start to get more and more desperate. You got to get out. Just leave it all behind. Get in the car. You got to get out. Finally, they did. They got in their car, they packed up, and they drove off. 
They made it across the bridge just uh, a short hour before it was closed. It was months before they got back to their house. And when they did, they found out it was not hurricane-proof. They, like so many others, lost all their possessions in that storm. Now, I'm so thankful that my dad took the time to call them, and I'm so thankful he loved them enough to warn them, even with a harsh tone. Because, friends, a, a warning that goes unheeded is a disaster waiting to happen. As Jesus has laid before us the beauty of the kingdom of God on this earth, don't take bits and pieces you like and ignore the uncomfortable things he says. He warns you, a life built on anything other than Christ, a relationship with him, a renewed heart, a renewed allegiance, a life of anything else, friend, it'll lead you to everlasting sorrow, the disaster of all disasters. We sang a song that beautifully sums up how we Christians go through this world. We found Jesus to be our rock, our foundation. It says, his oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Oh, when he comes with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Friends, would you trust Jesus, hear his words and live by them, and avoid the disaster coming on Judgment Day? Let's pray.